Hello, I'm Yannick Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcast. Maybe I should say, Jonathan, I am Yannick Levy from the newly crowned most expensive city in the world. I know. I knew you were going to you kind of brag about that because it, what do you think it makes me feel? I come from, I'm sitting here in London in the 17th. Didn't most make the cut. Didn't make the cut of the top 10. It, is all it I'm didn't make the cut. And it's so funny because, you know, the, the Guardian reported the story saying, oh, it's this unwanted title to be the most expensive city. And that's obviously definitely true, but you kind of don't want to be the 17th <laughs> most expensive either because it's like living in a sort of, you know, downward neighbourhood. You read the like the reporting in Israel and it's like, we kicked Paris off the fur the top of the lake. You know, and you're like, are we actually bragging a little bit about this? It's like, we want it to be first place in something. Um, so yay for us. It's like Lily Tomlin had this line. She said, you know, when I was growing up, I wanted to be somebody. I should have been more specific. So we wanted to be first place. We just should have been more specific about it. Because so, the, um, one you, the one everyone wants is the most livable city, which I think is always kind of <laughs> Vancouver. And you don't want to be the most expensive city because it's hard to live mm-hmm. in a really expensive city. Tell but, me about but it. But you, yeah. Uh, and well, tell you about it. We have told listeners about it. This is what I wanted to say. You know, we talk about bragging and, and a humble brag. I have to do a little bit of picking up of our own podcast because a couple of weeks ago, I think it was two or three weeks ago, um, our guest was Guy Rolnick, who talked about and answered the question, why is living in Israel, and I think we'd said specifically Tel Aviv, so expensive. We tackled that, unholy listeners. You were ahead of The Economist because you were listening to Unholy, so you knew this, and there is a trend here. I know this is not very British to be to, to big oneself up in this fashion, but I've just, it's got to be said. You, uh, Yonid, I think were the very first pundit who I heard saying, look, Naftali Bennett could be prime minister. Months even before, I think, it, it, it was even a glimmer of possibility, you were saying it on this podcast. We talked about how Tel Aviv is the most expensive place on this podcast. We talked about Eric Zemmour, who has made it official, and this week said he is running for the presidency of France. Okay, maybe you didn't have to have a crystal ball for that one, but you got it here first. And I think our podcast, correct me if I'm wrong, I think our podcast ended last week with us saying a fifth wave of coronavirus was predicted and coming. Israeli officials had said that, and we'd barely put down the microphone and suddenly we were talking about Omicron. You know, I'm so proud of you doing this. You're so... You're British and Jewish, which, to be honest, means a double dose of (laughs) self-deprecation. And just to have you... Like willing to stop and say, I was good at this. I'm, I'm proud of you, Jonathan Friedland. No, is, uh, no, you see there, stuff. you're not listening too attentively there, because if you notice, I bigged up everybody else except me there. It was Guy Rolnick, <laughs> it was you. So I'm still holding on to my British credentials <laughs> and Jewish credentials. <laughs> I've bigged up um, you and Guy and the podcast itself. And uh, Lior, our executive producer, there is no I in unholy. That's what you're trying to say. That's what you're trying to say. Um, great. So wait, let me pick up on what you were saying about COVID, which is where we left off last time, really talking about your concerns about a fifth wave. As you said, I think less than 24 hours later, the prime minister here spoke of a state of emergency vis-a-vis this uh, new variant called uh, Omicron, um, and Israel calls its border for tourists. Look, what I think is important to still say is that the preliminary data is that the booster shots are still pretty effective against this variant. And I think that's really important. We tend to criticize Israel a little bit. You know, I'm an Israeli, so criticizing the uh, country and the government is our national pastime. Um, But I think in this case, we really have to uh, stop and say, this was Israel. 
being very bold. Uh, not only the prime minister, by the way, the officials of the Ministry of Health and the data researchers are the first people in July to say, guys, the due doses are, are waning. The f- efficacy is, is wearing out. We need to give a booster shot. This is before anyone else in the world was doing it, right? Israel decided to go for it. And then the U.S. followed suit. Uh, and then the U.K. followed suit. It appears that your prime minister and my prime minister are WhatsApping uh, each other on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. So this decision saved lives. It saved lives and it's saving lives uh, all over the world. And I think that this combination of smart, you know, officials and bold decisions uh Really saved the day. Yeah, no, and again, on Unholy, Sharon Alroy Price uh, talked about exactly this and how boosters was the, not quite magic bullet, but it was the thing, and that Israel went out ahead first on that. I thought it was interesting that, again, on, on this same um point um naftali bennett was saying we're going to go in very hard with restrictions now about omicron in terms of travel and Mm -hmm. i think allowing no new travelers into the country for at least two weeks just to see um and saying uh, the clip of him i heard was saying you know we're going to act hard fast strong quick like all those words in order for it to almost be a kind of brand about Israel, you know, not only the most expensive city in the world in Tel Aviv, (laughs) but also like decisive and all in on COVID. And it's interesting because you're right, he he and Boris Johnson are talking to each other. And and yet there's a real they are a real study in contrast, because Mm -hmm. Boris Johnson has done a couple of things about masking, but not gone the full way, not imposed all the kinds of restrictions, even demanding tests before people fly into the country, not doing that, even though the opposition are demanding it. So Israel has is, is got this position to itself as being the kind of, you know, partly trailblazer, but also the, uh, the, the number one for acting very, very strongly on it, whether that works out or not. Yep. It's decided that's its position. Right. And if, if we're kind of looking at what Israel is doing, so we are hearing the first whispers of the idea of compulsory mandatory vaccinations. Um, I think it's more kind of a trial balloon being hovering over Israelis and, and letting them know that the, you know, that the officials are talking about this. I don't think it can work in Israel. Honestly, I don't think it can work in any country that uh, is not authoritarian. But um, this is something that Israelis have been talking about because also we mentioned this. There are a million Israelis who got their first two doses and didn't get the booster shot. And there are 700,000 Israelis, again, out of a population of 9 million, who who haven't been vaccinated at all. So this is kind of hovering as well in the conversation already. And this leads us to a whole question about, you know, uh, vaccine hesitancy. And there is some vaccine people who genuinely hesitate, they might do it. There's vaccine apathy, which is what I think you're describing there. People have had the first two, but kind of can't be bothered to get the third. Right. But there is also the anti-vax phenomenon. And I, uh, you know, my impression is, that that is, exists in both Britain and Israel. It's massive, uh, though, in the United States, where it's become this huge political thing. But there is a particularly sort of unholy-ish angle on this, uh, which is the, the the register, the kind of idiom that the, some parts of the anti-vax movement have used, which is right in our kind of uh, uh, zone. And for a feel for that, I think we ought to hear this clip from uh, American televisions, I think it comes from Fox News, and it is uh, the you know once quite esteemed reporter, but now I think more of a pundit, Lara Logan. Let's just hear what she said on Fox. 
And so in that moment, what you see on Dr. Fauci, this is what people say to me, that he doesn't represent science to them. He represents Joseph Mengele, the Nazi doctor who did experiments on Jews during the Second World War and in the concentration camps. And I am talking about people all across the world are saying this because the response from COVID, what it has done to countries everywhere, what it has done to civil liberties, the suicide rates, the poverty, it has obliterated economies, the level of suffering that has been created because of this disease is now being seen in the cold light of day, i.e. the truth. And people see that there's no justification for what is being done. I mean, notice, by the way, the sort of Trumpian technique there of other people are saying this. This is what I hear all the time, right? This comparison uh, of Anthony Fauci to Joseph Mengele I mean, offensive on so many levels, but not unique to the um, to this one reporter making this point or TV talking head making this point. This has been a feature of the anti-vax movement, this invocation of Nazism uh, with anti-vaxxers wearing the yellow star, now saying that Fauci is Mengele. The theme here is is so bizarre because we were used to, I think, being really offended when people compared a bad thing that was definitely bad to something that was much, much worse. So they would compare something bad happening in the world to the Holocaust. And we would say, that's offensive, that trivializes the Holocaust, you know, this battle here or this, uh, you know, terrible storm isn't the Nazis. Uh, this is a new thing where you say, doing something good for people, giving them a vaccine that might save their life, is somehow analogous to Nazi treatment of Jews. I mean, it is... It's not just sort of trivializing, it's something so much worse. Yeah, I agree. First of all, um, you know, the noise you now hear is the sound of my mind boggling. I mean, look, either you don't know anything about the Holocaust or you don't know anything about vaccines or likely you don't know anything about both. Mm. And as you said, it's a vile co comparison, uh, not only because you're cheapening the Holocaust, but you're getting in the way of fighting a global pandemic. Both things are, are, are terrible. And the interesting thing, Jonathan, is that the, the anti-vaxxers in this country who are really supposed to know better, right, because at least we're very good at Holocaust education, are using the very same terminology, the yellow stars. All of it is happening in Israel as well. Now, again, this is a fringe group, but they're still uh, they're creating a situation in which the, the officials at the Ministry of Health are walking around with security details. So you don't have to be a, a mass movement for it to be aggressive or, or even frightening. This is happening in this country as well. So now my mind is boggling. The idea of Jews and Israelis, who, as you say, should know better, thinking that your opposition to a vaccine puts you in the position of wearing a yellow star it's, um, I mean, it says a few things that in Western culture now almost, I mean, I think we've known this for a while, but the Holocaust is the kind of terminus case. It's, it's used always as the ultimate expression of anything tyrannical, evil, oppressive. We've known that. Um, uh, but the, but as I say, the flip here is the equation of an attempt to do good for people, to give them a vaccine, to save them from, uh, from a disease to be compared to, you know, as she used the phrase, medical experiments or, you know, gas chambers. It is just hideous. Even if you think that the, you know, vaccine is questionable, which is yeah. obviously you have to get into their heads. If you think it's a bad thing, it's not in this zone. And the evidence to think it's a bad thing is so um, at lacking when you have every day out of the United States comes more news of some anti-vaccine advocate dying of COVID. 
I mean, yeah. it keeps happening where people who are going on air on these TV talk shows and radio shows saying don't get the vaccine, the conservatives on talk radio in America, one or two of them, three or four of them, you know, they're dying because they are not protected. You know, I, I have to tell you of a conversation I overheard this week. Uh, an eight-year-old boy asking his father why I need to get, why do I need to get vaccinated? And his father gave him an answer I really liked. He said, there are rare opportunities in life to help save the world. You can maybe assume that it's a conversation that happened in my living room. That's why I overheard it. But what I liked about this answer so much is that it reminds us, not only is it very, it's a very Jewish answer, but it reminds us of the responsibility, right? Mass immunization is predicated upon the mass. The more people get vaccinated, more people are protected. That's how it works. It's simple. It's genius. That's how it works. And it's not only the responsibility for our bodies, our parents, our children. It's the responsibility we have to get rid of this as quickly as possible. And I think the anti-vaxxers, again, I'm having a very hard time getting into their heads, but you're, you're abdicating. You're not only, you know, doing something dangerous for yourself, you're abdicating your responsibility for the rest of the community. Yeah, no, I remember vaguely from my undergraduate uh, courses in philosophy, the notion of sort of selfish altruism. I mean, you know, the, the self-interested altruism. And this is one of those really rare cases. It's good for you and it's good for other people. And you're right, um, what you overheard in your living room is a very <laughs> Jewish perspective. You know, that line, it's now almost cliche, to save one life is to save the world. And, you know, by getting vaccinated, you might very, very well save your own life but you also protect those who come into contact with you. Um, look, people can have a principled opposition to the vaccine. I sort of, I don't get it, but okay. But it isn't Hitler and it isn't Mengele. And somebody... And the fact a, we even have to say this I mean, for out God's loud sake. is ridiculous. That, yeah, and there's somebody with a prominent platform, and we've both been saying she was at a, one point mm -hmm. uh, quite an esteemed journalist. I don't mm -hmm. know what's... Uh, happened to her but it's um okay so that's uh that's some of the, i mean we're doing doing almost advanced chutzpah there uh it's worse than chutzpah um we condemn it on unholy um i wanted to talk about something which on its face you would think come on is this really worthy of the full spotlight the full tractor beam of uh unholy's attention uh, and that is it's small because it's going on uh, you know at the university of toronto um uh, a resolution. Oh, look at you talking about the Commonwealth. Uh, <laughs> um, for our North American listeners, uh, the you know the, the University of Toronto Scarborough campus is in the news. Not normally in the forefront of our attention, but because of a resolution, a BDS resolution, a boycott, divestment, sanctions, that campaign. Um, we talked about that not long ago in the issue about Sally Rooney and not wanting her novel uh, published. Uh, in Hebrew, if it was going to be published by a, a, an Israeli translator that didn't comply with BDS standards, and we talked about that. But this thing that's happened in um, University of Toronto, I think, is really interesting because it goes to something we we sort of touched on there, and that is they've passed this resolution, essentially, you know, prohibiting goods or services or events which are implicated in what it calls Israeli apartheid. But they offered an exception, partly because of something that had happened on the campus before, an exemption uh, from the policy for kosher food products if no alternatives are available. So it said Jewish students on campus. The quote is, effort should be made to source kosher food from organizations that do not normalize Israeli apartheid. However, recognizing the limited availability of this necessity, then exceptions can be made if no alternatives are available. And a lawyer and sometime law professor by the name of David Schraub has done a very good 
a blog about it. You can find it at the um, debate link. Maybe we'll include that in the uh, episode notes. But the he puts his finger on something really interesting about this, which is, okay, so this is what happens when you get into BDS. The, the people who it affects most tend to be Jews outside Israel, not, not Israel itself. But also you get into this situation where other authorities, frankly, non-Jewish authorities, start policing Jewish life and behavior. You imagine some student council looking at, you know, knishes and <laughs> Viennas and burgers uh, and, and say, you know, and Kugel and saying that's allowed, that isn't allowed. Um, and that is a really uncomfortable image historically. And it's sort of where you get to. Uh, he, he said some other interesting things about it, but I want to know how, how you see this, Yannick, because to me, you know, it's a niche example, but I think it goes to something sort of No, like, I, I, don't think it's, I, I don't think it's niche because it obviously it's happening more and more, and we find ourselves on this podcast talking about these things more and more. Um, you know, as you said, the, obviously you're not hurting one bamba or hummus factory <laughs> in Israel, right? You're hurting Jewish students who you're policing, as you said, you're, you're trying to control what kind of food they're eating. And that, I think, goes into very dangerous realms, right? Trying to control what Jewish students are eating and telling them if it's okay or not is, is very problematic. Who exactly is going to tell you what organizations do or do not normalize apartheid? I, you know, there are so many questions around this. Look, I think you, you, as usually astutely, pointed out to, I think, what the main problem here is. And, and this is trying to separate or to detach, disentangle Jews from Israel, right? And basically say, oh, we have no problem with Jews, but we have problems with the state of Israel. You cannot do that. Either you're ignoring the fact or you're, you know, pretending to ignore it. You can't detach Jews from Israel because they're bound up together. They are uh, connected. So, so you're, as you said, you're hurting Jews in diaspora. And another thing, Jonathan, how exactly is this really advancing Palestinians' uh, plight and the Palestinian cause? What are you doing here in general, right? The BDS movement in general is, is, I think we are at a point where we can ask if it's not completely counterproductive. You're creating a situation when Israelis are digging in, right? They're, they're, they're not going to let the University of Toronto or anybody else dictate their policies, by the way, rightfully so. And the Palestinians are digging in because they're saying, hey, we have all this support. Why do we need to make the hard decisions that we need to make? So I don't even understand that at the, at the end of the day, besides, as I, I tell you this on occasion and you get miffed on occasion, but I say besides being cool, right, and being on topic in the university, what else are you trying to achieve here? No, I think, you know, it's funny because I always try in my own mind even actually to give the benefit of the doubt because I know, look, there are people who feel strongly about Israel and about Israel's occupation of the West Bank and they want to do something. And obviously, mm -hmm. you know, it's absolutely right that anything physical or involving violence is off the table. It has to be nonviolent. And then something comes along which they say, look, this is nonviolent. And E, then, and then people still say, no, look, you can't do that either. And so I do see the problem, you know, what form of political protest is viable. But the the trouble with this, I think the reason why I particularly mentioned that blog by David Schraub is I think it does put its finger on something so important, which is you say, it obviously doesn't affect Israel itself. Um, because, you know, the, the University of Toronto Scarborough campus 
you know, it is not in a position to regulate the Israeli states, right? So it's going to have no effect on that. Its impact will be on Jewish life. And an example that was going through my mind from this country was that a few years back, the UK Jewish Film Festival uh, had always used a venue in London called the Tricycle Theatre. It worked out very well. And the Tricycle said, look, you can come back, but we don't want you having even it was a turned out to be a very small amount of sponsorship from the Israeli embassy in London. So as long as you um, cut off the link to the Israeli embassy, we're delighted to host you. And the film festival had to explain, look, this link to the Israeli embassy isn't a, about a link to, you know, Netanyahu's government. It's about the, the state of the people of Israel. But in a way, it's almost more than that. It's what business is it of these other institutions to tell Jews how they can um, mark their own Jewish life? And I agree with you. I think what they what there's a desire almost on behalf of a lot of anti-Zionist activity to to pretend Zionism is on a different planet and has no link to Jews. We love Jews. We have no problem with Jews and Judaism. It's only Zionism. Well, who are you know, most? <laughs> What is Zionism about? It's about the you know movement of Jewish people, and it's you just can't really. That is a, a circle you cannot square, and they sort of don't really um, want to get there. I spoke to one person about this this week who says, you know, you could almost think this was a strategic de- uh, goal of the BDS movement is to deny diaspora Jews the space for any non-political connection or engagement with Israel to say that every contact is inherently political, you know, the kosher food even on the campus, you know, all but kosher food on the campus. And the result of that will be to kind of redefine Jewish identity and to say, look, Jews as diaspora, no problem, but you are not allowed. We, these non-Jewish institutions are saying you cannot have an identity that has, that centers on or even has a relationship with um the largest Jewish community or society in the world, the Jewish, you know, the Jewish and community. And then you of Israel. have to ask if they would dare do that to anyone else. Right? Well, cer- certainly that perennial question. But I, I, as I say, I, it's it's a it's a very specific example. But I think it goes to something that, you know, I in my own thinking, I hadn't quite nailed down about Sally, in the Sally Rooney case. But I think this case really illustrates it. Uh, very directly, not not necessarily very cheerily, but very directly. Oh, I just thought there was a Hanukkah angle on this too, which I haven't even mentioned. Go ahead, my friend. We, we are enjoying Hanukkah. Um, no, I did, the other example of it just was that people, lots of organisations have done this lovely thing, which is doing sending out you know on social media Hanukkah greetings to their followers, uh, online football clubs. All the Premier League football clubs have been doing the hum, Happy Hanukkah, and it's just been very noticeable that immediately, directly below this greeting, you know, a Jewish greeting about a Jewish festival to Jews. Immediately, there's this string of messages below on Twitter or whatever saying, you know, free Palestine, Palestinian flags, etc., as if it's about Israel. You know, this 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 thing of the two always being tangled up. It's it's pretty depressing to constantly say to Jews, "You're nothing unless we, you're prepared to sort of take responsibility for Israel." It, the, the the thinking is very uh, contradictory, I think, and it's uh, a bit depressing. It's setting a trap for Jews, right? And maybe that's the goal, right? As you said, it's to pressure Jews around the world to influence Israel's policies, which they have absolutely no effect over. It's just, you can't win with this. Um, and I feel like we need to move on to something menschy because oh. just help us. Yeah, um, to cheer us up because it's Hanukkah. A little bit, a little bit. 
Um, well, I was going to nominate as my mensch, uh, as somebody who has been delighting people, I think, the world over this uh, week, in fact, since the start of Hanukkah. Uh, and that person is Peter Jackson, the film director behind Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and those movies, has uh, made three very long films for the, and they're streaming on the Disney Plus channel, uh, under the title Get Back. It's his own recut of the hours and hours and hours of footage that was uh, shot in 1969 as the Beatles were rehearsing for what they thought was going to be a big live show. In the end, it was a very short but amazing live show that became the Let It Be album, and the show was that rooftop concert. And it's just an amazing eight, it's nearly eight hours, but it is just a thing of beauty. Uh, there are moments in it which are beautiful. And uh, uh, it's, you know, if you're a Beatle fan, which I think covers a lot of the world, um, then uh, Peter Jackson has given us a great treat. Okay, I thought we were going to nominate you, um, which I know we can't do for ethic reasons. But um, just um, the, the piece you wrote about the Peter J Jackson documentary, I urge all of our listeners to read it if they haven't yet. It just shot up into my ever-expanding list of uh, favorite Jonathan Friedman columns. Oh. Um, and it's beautiful. And I think that only you, I don't want to embarrass you by reading it out, paragraphs to you but only you could write something original about the beatles in the year 2021 so it's beautiful but are you a Beatles um, fan are, you, are beatles songs in how your can household? you not be a beatle fan isn't that just like defining are you a human being yeah um, i agree i was i was just concerned whether we're not there's no jewish angle oh dear and then i well, remember uh, i remembered brian epstein so i i'm, I'm who they I'm refer right to in the films it's very sweet they refer to him as mr epstein all the way through this wow. proper respect for him and they say they're missing a daddy figure because he's no longer there no my the Jewish angle was going to be yeah. I had or I'm not just saying this I always had the sense that the Beatles were sort of alive in Israel longer than elsewhere because you would hear Beatles songs on the radio uh, in Israel all the time I don't know if it's still true you but, still do right but more than you would hear actually and really? yeah really and I remember on the old voice of peace um from broadcasting from somewhere in the Mediterranean the Beatles <laughs> hour there was a whole hour yep. it'd be every yep. single day. And radio stations here... A.B. Uh, Nathan thought it would bring peace yeah, to just to do all an hour All you need is love and give peace a chance. But, you know, when people here had stopped doing that, Israelis were still doing it. So there's my Israeli angle. Right. And, and I just want to um, point out that you're really lucky to have a television. My television was taken over by two very sweet girls who are watching Frozen for the 700th time <laughs> this week. Oh, uh, in a week. And uh, so I'm just saying, uh, I keep hearing, do you want to build a snowman? I don't want to build a snowman. It's 25 <laughs> degrees outside. So that has been my week. You oh. can't see the, even the best film in the world, which is, of course, Casablanca. Uh, we're not going to fight about this. We're just not. No, I uh, think so you can't watch it 700 good. times a week. I just, that's it. That Maybe. was my short rant that has nothing to do with the Beatles. I just had to throw it in there. And uh, chutzpah? Yes. Chutzpah. Chutzpah is a tough, tough, fierce competition this week. It's a crowded field. Uh, it's crowded. It's crowded. We have, you know, Donald Trump for not telling anyone he had COVID and then going on the debate stage with uh, uh, Joe Biden, according to a new book. It's, of course, Naftali Bennett, who urged all Israelis not to go abroad because of the new variant, and then his own wife and children are, of course, going uh, on vacation. Um, but, but, Jonathan, I will choose uh, eventually uh, to nominate Rafaela Plastira, who's a Greek model who made it very clear that you will not be participating as Greece's representative to the Miss Universe pageant because it is in Israel. Uh, bold statement, which no doubt brings a Palestinian self-determination that much closer. But 
Uh, there's a little caveat in this whole thing because the organization that chooses the country's entry to the Miss Universe pageant said she indeed won't be participating because she isn't the country's choice, <laughs> but rather an entirely different Greek model who actually won. And she indeed uh, arrived in Israel. This is a great story. I have to say, I'm a little bit torn between the fact that the organizers managed to, you know, uh, weather the storms of boycotts and COVID and actually have this in a lot, uh, this... Uh, um, uh, contest. I'm just saying that I still think beauty pageants should be erased from the face of the earth, but that's just me. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say if you ha if you think that there should be a beauty pageant at all, that's a whole that's a first question. But if once you've made that decision, <laughs> the chutzpah to say that I'm not going to be taking part when you weren't actually chosen is so fantastic, and it gets very close to almost I think that kind of Leo Rost and Joys of Yiddish definition of chutzpah yep. you know yep. it's me saying i refuse to go to the state dinner that boris johnson is hosting i wasn't invited but i refuse <laughs> to go you know it's just it's got it's got kind of jewish joke sort of cadences to it the, the, the beauty pageant candidate who's boycotting who just wasn't selected but that's interesting that greece won so in a way it's a kind of there's a little bit of poetry. oh it didn't something. it didn't win yet i think i'm not sure i didn't follow it closely i think the competition no, but some, so everyone's here. I don't know. I'm. I'm sorry. I'm. I'm like in the news, but I'm not updated about this. No, for some reason, I'm not surprised that Yonit Levy is not hanging on the exact breakdown of results from Elat as the Miss Universe <laughs> election is decided. Nope. Um, not this year. I'm busy. For some reason, I'm not hugely surprised. If you like seeing into the future and act using us as your crystal ball, that telling you what is going on in the world. Weeks before it happens, I must tell you to recommend Unholy to your friends and uh, to re uh, review, subscribe, rate, do all the things that you do wherever you get your podcast. Please do that. It really helps us. Uh, it's like self-interested altruism, just to bring us back to that. It really is. You so know what else is self-interested altruism? Sending me some money. I live in a very expensive city, Jonathan. <laughs> You're a, a best-selling author. Send money. Um, I will say thank you to Leo Friedman, our executive producer, Rom Atik, Omer Primat, and Irad Eshel. And we shall meet next week. See you there.